0: Uh, today being session number 19, we'll be looking at one particular verse under the theme of Allah Jalla showing the Prophet, uh, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam, a true dream. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So as I said that chapter, verse 27 tonight is about a dream that the Prophet had seen. And really it was this dream that the Prophet saw while he was in Medina that set off this entire chain of events that we've been looking at over this last month. From the 1,400 or so Muslims going with Rasulullah from Medina towards Mecca, being stopped in Mecca, um, going or before before Mecca rather, going through the Peace Street of Hudaybiyah, and then eventually going back to Medina, and all that transpired thereafter. That this dream that the Messenger had actually began this entire event, um, and we will see how the dream was there by the that the Prophet had from Allah, but how that. The actual application for it was actually something a bit later, contrary to what the Muslims were hoping and were uh, wanting to see happen at the vision of the Prophet. So as we see that, you know, we've, so far that we've gone through this, we have this dream of the Rasulullah which happens in the sixth year after the Hijrah, uh, which event, again relates to the journey from Medina to Mecca. We have the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah in the sixth year after the Hijrah and the inability, the impermissibility to complete the Umrah. We have them returning to, Mecca, returning to Medina shortly thereafter. We have the victory at Khaybar, which is based on all of this, the dream is speaking about. And eventually the eighth year of Hijrah, where the Muslims are then finally permitted to enter Mecca uh, and to, uh, well, the, the next year they're allowed to enter Mecca, but in the eighth year they have the victory of Mecca, the conquest. Uh, and the purification of the Kaaba—all of this basically is in the backdrop of the the dream that Rasulullah sees. So, in this verse for today, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says to the Prophet. He says, مَا لَمْ فَجَعْلَ مِن دُونِ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا That certainly Allah showed to His Messenger the vision in truth. You will surely enter Masjid Al-Haram if Allah wills in safety with your heads shaved and hair or nails shortened, not fearing anyone. He Allah knew what you did not know and has arranged before that a conquest near at hand. So there are about three or four points I want to highlight, uh, but before I go to those highlights, just if we look at this verse in general, um, the very first thing that Allah is saying us is, is that He gave His Prophet, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. He gave him a ru'ya, a vision, a dream uh, in truth so we're going to look at the concept of dreams a bit later but one of the things we understand is that uh in the initial outset is that when prophets messengers see dreams that these are truthful dreams from allah so allah gives rasulullah a dream again this verse keep in mind in this chapter is coming down after the event um of leaving medina leaving mecca to go back to medina on that journey so Allah tells the Prophet that, and He's obviously telling the Muslim community as well, because the Prophet has already experienced this dream. So this is an after, uh, an afterthought from Allah telling the community that indeed Allah has shown the, the Messenger a vision in truth, and what that vision was, Allah says that you would certainly enter Masjid al Haram, insha Allah, if Allah wills, in safety. Now keep in mind that when this vision, this dream came to the Prophet and he told the companions that I have this dream that we will be entering Masjid al-Haram. And then they embarked on the Umrah. When the companions were stopped with the Prophet outside of Mecca, and they realized that, you know, they're not going to be able to go forth, their peace treaty has to be signed. They came and they questioned the Prophet. Some of them were confused that they said, Ya Rasulullah, that you told us you had a dream that we would enter into Mecca. And now we're being prevented. So the Prophet had to remind them, and this is based in, the, we have this in the hadith and the historical sources that the Prophet told them, I told you that we would enter Mecca, but I didn't say in which year. Right? He said, I had a dream that we were entering Mecca. It did not necessarily mean that it was going to be in that particular year when they made this journey towards. So it wasn't that the Prophet was misleading them or confusing or tricking them. No, their plan was still to go for the Umrah. He saw the vision, he saw the dream. It just so happens that Allah had willed something else to happen, and the Meccans obviously did what they wanted to do. And so the dream was real, and that dream would then be manifest later because they were signing the peace treaty, allowing them in the next year to come for the Umrah. And then that is where they had the ability to. And then Allah mentions actually Allah mentions an aspect of the Umrah which I'm sure if we've all been for Umrah or Hajj, we will recognize where He says that you would enter. And obviously, uh, once you complete the rites of the Umrah or the uh, portion of the Hajj, you have to do one of two things. Either you shave your head, the hair on your head that is, you shave that, or you trim a bit of the hair or you trim a bit of your fingernails. So the ruling basically Allah was giving from the fiqh aspect was that for people who have gone for hajj the first time, it is wajib to shave the hair. For those who are going on subsequent hajj, you can either shave it if you want, or you can cut a little bit of the hair or a little bit of the nails as well. And Allah is giving them this rule for the umrah as well, that you would have the option either for the shaving of all of the hair or for the trimming of the nails or a shortening of a bit of the hair. And we know for women who perform umrah or hajj, it is haram, it is not permissible for them to shave all of their hair. And so they only do the taqseer, they shorten either a bit of their hair or they can also trim a bit of their fingernails. Now it seems a bit strange sometimes people, because we're always trying to get to the philosophy of worship in Islam. But we try to wonder what's the philosophy of fasting, the philosophy of praying. And many times we have reasons in the hadith or even in the Quran, for example, But this is one of those aspects where it doesn't seem that we have a, let's say, a scientific rationale or, you know, even a hadith-based rationale. You could say, okay, you know, for those who have gone for hajj the first time, shaving your hair completely symbolizes a new birth, right, a rejuvenation. Now, as as the hadith mentions, when you complete hajj, it is as if the day that you have been born from your mother, all your sins are removed. But then women don't shave their hair. They cut a bit of their hair, a few pieces, or they trim their nails. So it seems that these kinds of uh, ahkam, the rulings we have, are things that obviously are only known to Allah. They're only in that kind of realm of that we do them because there is an obligation to do them. And we may never know if there's actually a wisdom or a scientific rationale or a backing for such acts of worship. And then Allah says that He knew what you did not know, and he has arranged before that a conquest near at hand. Um, so again we're looking at this, we, we see that we know that Allah, his knowledge is limitless, his knowledge is not contingent on certain events, his limit knowledge is not kind of compartmentalized that it's only when something happens and he gets to know about it, Allah is infinite in knowledge and so Allah makes it known that whereas the Muslims were not aware of what was happening they were still upset about not going for the Umrah, about having to do the peace treaty, about terms in which they felt were very uh, against the Muslims. Allah says, look, he knows what he did, he knows the outcome, and he basically was allowing the Muslims to recognize that they need to follow along, and they will see the results at the end of the journey that they're on. As I mentioned that this dream comes to the Prophet way before the trip in Mecca, Right? And on the way back to Medina is where this verse is revealed. So the Prophet had already told the companions about a dream. But Allah doesn't reveal this particular verse that we're looking at until they're coming back. So they're leaving Mecca on the way back to Medina. And then this verse comes to Rasulullah. And so we actually understand even at this point, brothers and sisters, that when it comes to the Qur'an revelation, it's obviously done on Allah's time. The the Qur'an has uh, two forms of revelation. We have an instantaneous revelation of the Qur'an, uh, which is this Inzal, and then we have the tanzil, which is a gradual revelation over 23 years of the time of the life of the Prophet. And as events are happening, then Allah is gradually revealing these verses to Rasulullah, one by one to the Messenger, and then obviously to the community on a whole. I want to focus on three uh, words or passages in this verse before we go to the discussion about dreams. Uh, the one is where Allah says, "Latadhulunna," that you will definitely enter. So this lam that Allah mentions at the beginning of the word, it is the lam which is a, which we use for the akasam, an oath. You know, we have, for example, "Wallahi," "Billah," "Tallah" as ways that we make an oath to Allah. This lam is another way that Allah uses to make an oath. So in essence, Allah is uh, taking an oath upon Himself. He's making a, a, a very firm promise. And then the noon at the end with the Shadda, that la the, tadkhulunna, the noon at the end is for emphasis. So Allah is basically adding at the beginning of this word and the end of the word, double layer of emphasis, telling the Prophet and the Muslims that without a doubt, definitely I'm to, I take an oath, that you will enter into Masjid al-Haram at a future date. So there's a promise from Allah within this word which again when you look at the English, you will definitely enter that phrase. It doesn't convey that until you go to the Arabic and you analyze it letter by letter then you realize the levels of emphasis that Allah is putting. And this is why we've been mentioning even in this series as well that any translation you read of the Qur'an in English or probably even Urdu or any other language will always be deficient. There will always be these shortcomings because you won't, the translator won't add all of this information. So you won't know that the lam is for emphasis because there's a lam for emphasis in Arabic, but there's also a lam for a qasm. So how do you know the difference, right? And translations won't show this to you. It won't even show you that there's an emphasis or a qasm being taken. The noon at the end, again, for emphasis. The translation will never explain. They might say for sure or surely, but when you learn that that noon with the shadda on it, at the end of the verb is used in Arabic for emphasis, for like Allah putting a, 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 an emphasis on a particular concept, right, we do, we miss out on all of these beauties. So that, that's one of the reasons why we always encourage the Mu'mineen to try and learn Quranic Arabic, not necessarily spoken Arabic, because you won't maybe find all these same nuances, but when you study Quranic Arabic, and there are many good apps and, Websites that could do this and books then you would be able to see the beauty of the of the of the Arabic of the Quran And also the depth of what Allah expects and, and is, is you know showing to the community is his message This phrase inshallah it's Something that we all know because we all use this phrase inshallah. We somebody asks us to do something. We say inshallah um, It's a very common phrase that the Muslim community uses So why does Allah use it here? Because he's giving us an oath. He says, you will definitely enter into Masjid al-Haram, right, with emphasis and the Qasim. He he should have just ended it right there. But Allah adds, inshallah. Why would Allah do that? Because if Allah says you'll do it, you'll enter, it's not a matter of inshallah then, because Allah says, I'm going to do it, case closed, right? There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Allah can change the entire cosmos for something to happen. But he still adds insha'Allah. And so scholars of the tafsir have kind of been perplexed of why would Allah do this? And one of the opinions as you see on the screen is that this could be used by Allah to teach His servants, that is you and I, the reality of ubudiyah of servitude, and that we, can, we should never forget that He is the ultimate in control, and that we never consider ourselves to be independent and needless of Allah. So he's telling the Muslims at the time of the Prophet, look, you will enter, but this is, this is still through my intention, my irada, my will, is allowing you to enter into Mecca. If I don't want it for you to happen, you won't be able to do it. So Allah is not saying you'll enter, you know, presumably, He's, uh, he's reminding them that you will enter for sure, but your entering is because I have allowed you to enter. Right? We also have to, We also have to be careful, brothers and sisters, because many times... We as Muslims use this phrase insha'Allah, and we don't use it in the sense of Allah willing. Many times people will use it as a scapegoat. If somebody comes and asks us, "Oh, I need some help moving, or I need some help doing this and that," and we say, "Insha'Allah, brother, I'll be there. Insha'Allah, I'll come over and help you." And many times it's a it's a truthful insha'Allah. I won't give it. I'll give us the benefit of the doubt. But many times we say it's. Because we don't want to go, and so we say it as, as, a, as a cop-out that, you know, if Allah wills, I'll come. And then we don't go, and we say, oh, you know what, brother, Allah didn't want me to come. Something else came up in my life, and I couldn't make it. Right? So we have, to be real, we have to realize that, inshallah, isn't that it's an easy way to lie for us. No, it, it, truly it should mean that, right? That as long as nothing else impedes my my day or my week, I will be there to help you in whatever you've asked me that I've confirmed. Right? And ultimately we have to recognize that this phrase should be kind of ingrained in our heart, that whatever we do, try and attempt to, to do, right, is always through the Mashi'ah, the will and the intention, the irada of Allah. Many times people will will to do good things even, right, and it doesn't happen you'll want to do something good even, and it just won't occur. Now that's an entire, entirely separate discussion on tawfiq, on what it means to have that success to do certain actions, because sometimes we will not even have the tawfiq to do good in our lives, because Allah will remove that from us because of our own actions. And again, that's a separate topic. And even sometimes we will want to sin, we'll want to commit a guna, and Allah will remove the, the, the tawfiq to do the sin. So it can work in two different ways, actually, according to our uh, theologians. Maybe maybe another time we can look at it in more detail, what it means to have the tawfiq of Allah, how is it given to us, and how it's taken away. But I'm just going to leave it at that for tonight. Um, and then the last phrase I want to kind of reflect upon is where Allah talks about giving the b- believers Fathan karib, this conquest near at hand. So scholars differ on what this could mean. Um, They say it could refer to the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, as we've been looking at this entire uh, month of Ramadan, that this was a victory, what was near at hand. The Muslims didn't look at it as a victory because they felt the conditions were against the community and it was actually a loss or it was a form of humiliation. But again, as we had talked about, that the Prophet had the big picture in mind. He was looking out of the box. He was looking into the for, he was very forward thinking about the future of the, of the community, the short-term future, meaning from 6 Hijra up until his death, and also the continuation of the, of the Ummah, right, until the end of time. So the Prophet was looking at it from the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. what would be the short-term effect, the, the long, the medium-term and the long-term, uh, and it would open the door to many more victories the community would face. Or, as commentators mentioned, perhaps it could be a reference to the victory at Khaybar, because it was in the next year after they go back to Medina that we know that the Jewish community who were uh, living in Khaybar, just outside of Medina, that they basically were planning an attack against the Muslims, and um, there were even some uh, things that were other things that were going on, and so we know that the Muslims. <laughs> were in their right to uh, to launch an attack on Khaybar. We have, I'm sure, heard the mo- that story about Amir al-Mu'mineen lifting the door of Khaybar and him being one of the people who was the, uh, you know, the foremost in the in the battle of Khaybar. And they uh, they also attained a lot of spoils of war from that. And that's why even in a previous verse we looked at, Allah talked about the maghanima Kathiratan that Allah referred to the, the major spoils of war they collected. One of those aspects was out of the attack to the fortress of khaybar Or as scholars say, it could be a combination of both of these things because there's no uh, clear consensus on what this fat could be, this victory could be, and so scholars take both of them as being possibilities. For the time that we have remaining, and we won't go till the Maghrib time, that will stop a bit early, but I want to really touch on very briefly about the reality of dreams in Islam. Dreams is one of those areas which everybody loves to talk about and wonder about. And no doubt dreams are something very unique that Allah has given us. You can be living here in Saskatoon, never have left the province, but you may have dreams of you being back home or in another country or another, you know, in another whatever place, either in the past or you may go into the future. All of us see dreams more or less, you know, you can, I won't, I won't go into the scientific data, but you can go online and see when when people see the, you know, dreams, what part of the night, how much we dream. But no doubt all of you in this room have had dreams at one time. Sometimes we have nightmares, we have bad dreams, we see things that we don't want to see. Maybe a loved one passing away, maybe an accident. Many times we have good dreams which, you know, we wake up and sometimes we wish we we never woke up with that dream was continuing because What we saw in our dream, we know we'll never get in life, right? So dreams are very interesting in that way. Um, You can look at it from the psychological point of view, you can, you know, talk and research it from from that perspective, and they have a lot of opinions on what happens in that state of dreaming. I'm going to give us just some details and information from the religious perspective and what the Qur'an says. Um, And then obviously you can make up your own conclusions um, from there. So one of the questions that people ask from the religious perspective as well is why we see dreams. Right? What is this happening in our brain at night or daytime when we're sleeping that we see these these visions or these like almost real-to-life pictures in our head? They're you know in, in 4K quality and there's audio and there's all of the you know emotions we're experiencing. All of our all of our uh, you know, five senses are kind of being put to the test in a dream. So some people believe and this is kind of both Islamic and from a secular perspective, um, that we see dreams based on what we did, what we said, what we experienced in the day. Right? So we are cooking, maybe we're watching a movie or watching television or watching a show on Netflix, and then we have a dream and it's it's triggered by what happened in our day. Right? Something happens at work or at school and we dream about it and it's now in our mind because that, that event was a real event, but now we… Our brain, our subconscious takes that event and puts it maybe in the form of some kind of a story or event in our mind. Um, sometimes we see those things that we love to that we always love and we always think about, right? Um, you love your spouse, hopefully, and maybe you see her or him in your dream constantly because you're always thinking about them. They can't, you can't get them out of your mind, hopefully. Hopefully it's that and nobody else you're thinking about. Because um, <laughs> that would be your problem, if that was the fact. Um, so you see that, what you love, because you're always thinking about that, right? So that's what you dream about now. Um, or there's things that you hate, and you know, you're, you're always even thinking about that maybe, right? Something that you don't like, or some problem that, that you, you know, have. But that constant thought, it kind of triggers your subconscious at night, and that's what you see in your dreams sometimes. Or no, sometimes dreams become like a history book of our life, right? Things that happened in the past. We dream about what, what, what it was like back home. We have a memory, a recollection, or we went on a vacation, let's say, to the mountains or somewhere, in Niagara Falls. And then we have a dream about that. Right? Is it just that we're, our mind is recollecting those memories and now projecting it in this, in this space called the dream? That's a possibility as well. Or lastly, is that no, the dreams and all, all, all four of these could be valid. But the fourth one is really interesting because there is an opinion based in hadith actually where dreams can become a premonition of what will happen in the future. So we actually have a hadith, I didn't bring it unfortunately on the screen, but we have a hadith where, uh, if I can paraphrase it, we're told that dreams are 1 I believe, of revelation of wahi. And then the and what what the hadith mentions is that many times we see things that happen in the future, and this is a way of Allah showing us that just like I can show you what will happen in the future, I gave that I gave that news to my prophets. I gave my prophets, as we've been seeing in this chapter, many uh, pieces of information of things that will happen in the future, and so the hadith basically mentions that when Allah gives us a dream that we see and then. One day that exact thing happens and we're like, wow, that's like deja vu. I could have sworn I had a dream about this. It's Allah's way of telling us that, look, if you want to, if you don't believe in Nubuwa and prophethood, I've just given you an example of prophethood, that prophets were given news of the future and they told it to you. I'm giving you a very small glimpse into into the mechanics of the world and I'm going to give you a dream. And that dream will come exactly true and maybe you've experienced this and you'll say, well, wow, that, that I've seen this exact same thing happen in my dream. So scholars use this, and I told Makarim Shirazi in his book, The Message of the Qur'an, a multi-volume thematic commentary of the Qur'an, volume one, which is available in English. The rest of the nine volumes were not translated. Um, but he talks about this in one of the latter chapters about dreams of the prophets and why we are given dreams. So again, and it's a huge topic to discuss. We, we you know, we don't have time today. It would call for multiple sessions. Uh, but we just have to realize that dreams have a meaning. Sometimes they just are based on what we had for dinner that evening, what we're thinking about, what we're watching, but we do definitely have times where dreams can have a real interpretation in our lives. Uh, let me mention this as I go before I go to the next slide, though, that you know, this happens to me and I'm sure many other of our religious scholars in, in our communities, is that people have come to me many times and said, I've seen a particular dream, what does it mean? Right? Or we might go online and Google, I saw this in my dream, what does it mean? And I have to be very clear that this is not something taught in the house of Komar Najaf. Right? In actuality, actually, if you look at it from one perspective, the only people that know the interpretation of dreams are the 14 Masumin and the other prophets. So even a marja, or the greatest of maulanas, the Sayyid, they don't have, this is not a course that is taught in, in the hawza, right? Because dream interpretation is not, like, you know, I'll give you an example. There's a book by Ibn Sirin, he was at the time of apparently the fifth and sixth imam. And there's a book, a very large book, um, the Tabir of the Khab, the interpretation of dreams by Ibn Sirin. It's also in English, maybe in Urdu as well. And if you open the book, you'll, for example, say, okay, I had a dream where I saw eating a banana, as, a, as an example. And he'll say, if you see eating a banana in a dream, this is what it means. And this book is available online, I'm sure you can find it. This is not based on ayat of the Qur'an or hadith. Right? Many of these things, what, what, what ended up happening is people would have a dream, and something would happen, or something would re- reciprocate, and they would come to, let's say, somebody like him or somebody, and say, I had a dream, and then X, Y, and Z happened. And they say, oh, so there's the correlation, you dreamt about this, that happens, so that's the, the combination, that, that is what it means for every single person. But we have to recognize that dreams have a meaning, but not that you or I or any alim or mujtahid or ayatollah can ever understand and explain. This is limited to Allah, and obviously we, get, we can't ask Allah, or the 14 maasumeen. And obviously, we don't have any of them at our disposal to ask them. So keep that in mind as I move on to the hadith, because the four hadith I want to mention are, will be tying into this. Uh, I'm going to mention this very quickly, that there are um, examples of dreams in the Qur'an, other than what we're looking at today from chapter uh, 48, 20, verse 27. We do see chapter 17, verse 60. There is a dream that Allah tells the, 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 the readers of the Qur'an about, that the Prophet had a dream about what he called the Shajratul Mal'una, the cursed tree in the Quran and that is according to the Tafsir is relation to Bani Umayyah and that they would take over the religion of Islam. Right? So they're the cursed family tree mentioned in the Quran. Surah 48, what we're looking at for verse 27, the dream of the prophet going to Umrah. We have uh, 37 verse 102 where Ibrahim السلام, sees the dream of slaughtering his son and then ismail says you know if al ma tu maru do what you are commanded to do that's where we have the qurbani in the hajj uh, surah yusuf uh, for those who love the story of surah yusuf you'll remember there's at least three dreams mentioned in there uh, or maybe even four actually right at the beginning nabi yusuf tells his father inni ahada al i saw the seven the 11 stars and the sun and the moon i saw them doing sajda to me Then he tells his uh, son Yusuf, Don't tell your brothers the dream. So there's one example of a dream. Then later on in verse number 36, we have the story of the companions in prison who have seen a dream. And they ask him, What does it mean? There's one where there's a bird. He's on my head eating bread. And he says, You're going to be killed in a couple of days. You'll be executed. The other one will be set free. And then the fourth dream of the king, where he sees these seven cows that are very fat and then seven cows that are very lean and Nabi Yusuf is uh, called from prison to come and interpret the dream and that's where he tells the king, you're going to have seven years of a bumper harvest, save it because seven years of famine and drought will come and you're not going to have food, so, you know, store the grain in the silos for your community. So you see, brothers and sisters, there are multiple examples of dreams in the Qur'an. And again, the, the difference with these dreams, and in, in interpretation, obviously the last, uh, the last three or so examples are of non masum having a dream. Um, but they were true dreams because the Prophet at the time, or one of the Prophet, or multiple Prophets, because at the time of Nabi Yusuf, he was obviously a Prophet, but his father Ya'aqub alayhi salam, was, we can say, the Prophet of the time. <coughs> but yaqub was eventually going to be a Prophet, and he had the power of interpretation given to him by Allah. So there are times even where we see these because the two companions in prison weren't Muslims. They were not even believers. They were mushrik, but they had a true dream and the Prophet of God was able to interpret it for them. And the king also was not a believer in in Tawheed, but yet he had a true vision, which then it took a Nabi of Allah to interpret for him. I'm going to conclude uh, with four hadith that I found very interesting about dreams. Um, And there's something to think about basically. Uh, The first one from Al-Kafi, from our prophet, he says that a dream should only ever be related to a believer who does not harbor jealousy or any wrongdoing, any malicious intent. Generally speaking, our ulama will tell us if you see a dream, good or bad, don't tell anybody about it. Take out some sadaqah, right, whatever amount, especially if it's a bad dream, you see somebody being killed or an accident take out sadaqah but don't tell people your dream keep it to yourself and as the prophet says if it's uh, you know if you want to then give only to a believer who again doesn't have jealousy or any kind of hatred in their heart but best is to keep dreams to yourself unless you really want to you know to your spouse or something like that then obviously that is a different story uh, the sixth imam says in the hadith again in al-kafi that there are three types of dreams there are what he calls the glad tidings from Allah, the bisharat min Allah, for the believer. There are ominous dreams which come from the demonic realm, from the satanic realm, so the, you know, the nightmares and things that we see. Uh, and dreams which as he calls is, are azghaf, muddled dreams. They're confusing, they don't have any clear understanding, right? And maybe some of these are based upon, you know, uh, we have, for example, in Hadith, we're told that before you go to sleep, make sure you're in Tahara, make sure you do wudu, Make sure you recite ayatul kursi the four quls, right? Certain surahs to recite before you go to bed. Especially Tahara, being in wudu is important because um, this, uh, the ominous dreams from Satan or, the, or the, the, the satanic influences can get to us when we're not in a state of Tahara, of purity. And that's why we're advised to always be in wudu. Whether you're going to work or school or you're going for a walk or you're going to sleep or whatever you're going to do. Hadith mentioned always be in a constant state of wudu. Two more hadith and we'll round up our discussion for tonight is that the Prophet said that no remnants, this kind of ties into what I mentioned. He says no remnants of prophecy of nubuwa remain today in people's lives except for glad tidings, except for good dreams that come true. And when asked what the glad tidings were, he replied, "True dreams." So this is a very gen- generic hadith in Bihar. Another one actually gives that that, that uh, percentage of one twenty-third or one twenty-fifth is part of uh, a true dream is from Nubuwa, or f- to show us that we have the ability to see the future. But in this hadith, the Prophet also points to this in a more gener- uh, general, generic, or general fashion. And the last hadith from Sheikh Saduk in his book Al Amali, which is um, also actually available. All, all of these, I think, are in English, other than Bihar al-Anwar, but Al-Amali is definitely also in English, in which our fifth Imam says, when people sleep, their spirits go out into the sky. And whenever the spirit whatever whatever the spirit sees while in the sky is true, and whatever it sees on the way back in the wind are just muddled dreams. So again, as I said, that these hadith and this entire discussion is not easy to have because there are many. Complexities to it. We haven't really been given a clear indication in the Quran or in the prophetic literature of the reality of dreams. There are certain things Allah has kept ambiguous to us. Like what does it mean, you know, that your spirit goes into the sky? Right. We know that when we sleep, because the Quran is clear that when we go to sleep, our our ruh leaves our body in 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 a in a very unique way. You know, if you had like a rubber band, you have rubber one of the one end of the rubber band here, and you begin to pull the rubber band, right? And you let go of it, it kind of joins together. So our scholars give the example of sleep and our soul to be like that. When we sleep, our soul leaves the body, but it's still connected, it has a connection. And when we wake up, it's that soul going back into the body completely. And then that verse of the Quran says that when people sleep, Allah takes their souls. And those who are destined to live another day, Allah returns that soul back to the body. And those who are meant to die will die in their sleep. So there is again this entire discussion, which we won't go into today, of what it means for the soul to leave the body at the time of sleep, and and where does the soul go? Does it travel around the world, you know, to different parts? Is that why we see countries that we've never been to? Again, we'll have to leave that for another day.